0: The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 5, and our study this evening is the 5th. Of the Old Testament sacrifices, these are the core offerings of the tabernacle and temple worship. These are the bases of all the sacrifices that are made in the Old Testament. Each of these references our relationship to Christ in salvation, either it's through His perfect life or His atoning death, and the offerings are classified according to which of those two that it represents. The life of Christ corresponds to sweet savor offerings, and the death of Christ Refers to the non sweet savor offerings. Sweet savor is the pleasantness of the devoted life of Christ to his Father, while the non sweet savor offerings are the displeasure of the Father because of sin. That is, uh, God's people had to have their sins laid upon Jesus Christ to be a penal substitute to offer himself for the violations of his law. The sweet savor offerings were burned inside the tabernacle enclosure, that is within the linen fence, but the non-sweet savor were carried outside of the tabernacle area, outside of that linen fence, beyond the tents of dwelling of Israel, outside of the camp to be burned there, and that represented Jehovah God's hatred for sin and how it utterly separates vile and holy sinners from Him. Now the last of the offerings that we're going to study is the trespass offering. And this is also known as the guilt offering. And this offering is explained in Leviticus chapters 5 and 6. So if you have your Bibles open, I want to read this section and begin our discussion of the trespass offering. Leviticus chapter 5 and verse number 14. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, If a soul commit a trespass and sin through ignorance in the holy things of the Lord... Then he shall bring for his trespass unto the Lord a ram without blemish out of the flocks with thy estimation by the shekels of silver after the shekel of the sanctuary for a trespass offering. And he shall make amends for the harm that he hath done in the holy thing and shall add the fifth part thereto. Now that's a very peculiar part of the offering that we'll discuss as we go on. He shall add the fifth part thereto and give it unto the priest And the priest shall make atonement for him with the ram of the trespass offering, and it shall be forgiven him. And if a soul sin and commit any of these things which are forbidden to be done by the commandments of the Lord, though he wist it not or though he didn't know it, yet is he guilty and shall bear his iniquity. And he shall bring a ram without blemish out of the flock with thy estimation for a trespass offering unto the priest. And the priest shall make an atonement for him concerning his ignorance which he erred and wist it not, and it shall be forgiven him. It is a trespass offering. He has certainly trespassed against the Lord. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, If a soul sin, and commit a trespass against the Lord, and lie unto his neighbor in that which was delivered him to keep, or in fellowship, or in a thing taken away by violence, or hath deceived his neighbor, or hath found that which was lost, and lieth concerning it, and sweareth falsely in any of all these things that a man doeth sinning therein, then it shall be because he hath sinned and is guilty that he shall restore that which he took violently away, or the thing which he hath deceitfully gotten, or that which was delivered him to keep, or the lost thing which he found, or all that about which he hath sworn falsely, he shall even restore it in the principle, and shall add the fifth part more thereto, and give it unto him to whom it appertaineth in the day of his trespass offering. And he shall bring his trespass offering unto the Lord, a ram without blemish, out of the flock, with thy estimation, for a trespass offering unto the priest. And the priest shall make an atonement for him before the Lord, and it shall be forgiven him for anything of all that he hath done in trespassing therein. The trespass offering was intended to elicit a confession of offenses against God and man, and then to make restitution for the wrong that the offender had done, and thereby to have the penalty of his guilt taken away. Now, this makes the trespass offering an expiatory sacrifice, and that sounds very theological, but as I explained to you last time, that it means simply this, to take away guilt. I hope you remember that. An expiatory sacrifice is one that takes away guilt. Guilt expresses itself in two forms. When we break the law, we incur legal guilt. If we break either the law, moral law or the civil law, then there's legal guilt and we're responsible to pay the penalty of it. Now, I like to refer to that in, in sort of an odd way. I would call that antiseptic. That the law is applied without feeling, and the penalty is paid without feeling, so it's quid pro quo. You you pay the penalty, and the antiseptic for the offense is to receive uh, freedom from legal guilt. But that doesn't exhaust the biblical meaning of guilt. There's also emotional guilt, and that's the feeling of a of a wounded conscience, and it's oppressive. Weight that goes deep down into the soul, When God has made that man, made man that way, so that we feel this way, and unless we are, we feel guilt when we do something wrong, unless our conscience has been trained to overlook it, or as one thing the Bible says, is seared to ignore it. When we harm others, guilt feelings arise in us, and these are pangs of conscience that won't turn loose of us, and until we've done something about it, because we know that we have no peace with either God or man. And the problem with people who have been a long time in sin is that they should feel guilty about what they do, but they don't. I mean, for a person who, who doesn't have a trained conscience, he may not feel guilt in the way that he should. For example, if the moral code of society is relaxed, then there's little sense of right and wrong. And so we have sins like like adultery and homosexuality and transvestitism. And uh, uh, did I say that right? Transvestism. I think that's the word that I want. When those things are normalized, then people become defenders of things that are sin. That's because the conscience has been reversed and there isn't any sense that these are crimes that are against God. But instead, those who oppose those things, they're the ones who are made to be the misfits. My wife and I uh, saw a disgusting program on television uh, some time ago that very clearly proclaimed its agenda that those who oppose transgenderism and abhor the thought of sexual relationships between biological males and females with those who have been transgendered, that those of us who think like that, that there's something wrong with that, we are the abnormal bigots. And so thus guilt is produced In some, because a person may feel that he's mistreated a miscreant. So that proves that God put a conscience in all people that will respond to the way that it has been trained. And the conscience must be trained according to the right theological bent before our guilt coincides with God's viewpoint of right and wrong. Now an example of legal guilt according to an untrained conscience would be in the story of Stephen in Acts chapter 7. Uh, He was brought before the Sanhedrin, and he was accused of blasphemy, for which the Jewish law said that he should be put to death. Uh, They stoned him, and they had no feelings of guilt that they'd done it because they thought that they were doing God's work. So they acted rightly according to what they knew in their legal system. Stephen was guilty of, of their definition of blasphemy, but not guilty according to the truth of God, And Stephen's clothes were taken over and they were laid at the feet of a man who was named Saul had no feelings of guilt when he consented to the death of a man who was a Christian. But then later when Paul became a Christian, he said that he did his evil work because he was in ignorance and in unbelief. And so he acted according to the legal system that he knew what he understood. And when he learned the truth of it, Then the guilt welled up in him, and he realized that what he'd done was against God, and so he wanted the forgiveness of God for what he had done. But he never would have felt guilty if God had not saved him and changed his perspective of what is right and wrong. Now this reminds us of what God said about reversing good and evil, where some people call good evil and evil good. And Jesus said, people will persecute you. If you believe in Him, they will persecute you thinking that they're doing God a favor they're not going to feel guilty about it because they don't recognize that they're doing wrong. Now, the point of this is to understand that there is a conscience that always produces guilt. And the way that it responds is according to its morality. For instance, the Pharisees felt very guilty when they broke all of their nitpicky laws, and yet Christians felt no guilt at all when they did the same. Uh, Jesus' disciples went with him through a wheat field on the sabbath day and they reached out and picked some of the grains uh, heads of wheat some of the grain to eat and they had no conscience about that there was no guilt over it and let and let but the jews they 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 were very seriously wounded that was an offense to them guilt is also a very powerful religious tool some use it to control this is a common tactic in legalistic ministries that they control through dress and moral requirements that produce guilt feelings in people who violate that code. And then at the same time, it, it keeps people in line. While it's keeping people in line, it produces in others a sense of superiority over those who don't keep the code. Now, the trespass offering is a picture of how people are released from this oppressive weight of guilt when they recognize their sinfulness and, and their unworthiness before a holy God. Guilt produces hopelessness. It leaves people in despair. And this offering pictures those sins removed so that both legal guilt and emotional guilt are ended. Now, the method of the trespass offering in doing that, removing guilt, is quite unusual. As, we just, uh, as I made a comment just a moment ago, and we're going to examine that in this passage as we go. Now, if you look in this text, you can see that there are sins that are listed. In chapter 6, there is lying, There's sins against fellowship, there's the sin of deception, sins that are directly against God, and others that are indirectly against God, but are directly against man. That's different from the sin offering. There aren't any specific sins that are mentioned in the sin offering. Those are about the offender, not about the offenses. But the opposite is true here. This is about offenses, not the classification of offenders. And that's the major difference between the two offerings. The terms of the two are almost identical when you think of sin offering and trespass offering, but the way that they deal with sin is quite different. The sin offering is about the sin nature, while the trespass offering is about the fruit that comes from that sin nature, its actual sins that are committed. As one person aptly said, the sin offering atones for sins of the evil heart, but the trespass offering attends for uh, 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 atones for sins of behavior. So if you want a very succinct statement to explain the difference between the two, you can just fill out those blanks on your listening sheet. The sin offering atones for the evil heart. The trespass offering atones for the sins of evil behavior. That contrast is accentuated by Jesus' categorization of sin. The nature of the evil heart is in Matthew 15, verses 17 to 18. And the acts of the sinful heart are described in Matthew 17, 16 to 18. So let's notice the difference between these two in Jesus' teachings. In Matthew 15, 17 to 20, it says, Do not ye, uh, do not ye yet understand that whatsoever entereth in at the mouth goeth into the belly, and is cast out into the draft? But those things which proceed out of the mouth come forth from the heart, and they... Defile the man now this is the sinful heart addressed by the sin offering, but then on the other hand, there's the fruit of the sinful heart that's addressed in the trespass offering. This is what Jesus addresses in matthew seven sixteen to eighteen ye shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Even so, every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, and neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. So evil fruit is produced by an evil heart. So in this, in these two offerings, both of those aspects are corrected, both problems with the heart. The nature of the heart is remedied so that it no longer produces these evil acts. The good tree brings forth good fruit. and So the new nature that's implanted by regeneration enables the fruits of righteousness. Now, according to those distinctions, then we expect that we would find a list of sins when it talks about the trespass offering. But we look at this passage and we see, well, there isn't a list of all the sins that can be committed. And if we were to list them all, then I would read and I would read and I would read and I would read and, I would read, and I'd keep on reading, and that's all we'd have the time to do is just keep on reading. I remember a few years ago there was a Church of Christ preacher in, uh, in our town in Lexington and he had a radio program and he said, if you want to know if something is a sin, just call into the radio show and I'll tell you whether it's a sin or not. And for somebody who believed that a Christian could lose his salvation if he sins, then you better believe he wanted to know what things are sin. You got to know that. Well, they have an interesting way of... of um, defining these things, the things that they do are mistakes. The things that you do are sins. And uh, I don't believe that you can lose your salvation, so I'm not a whole lot interested in carrying around a rule book with a catalog of all the sins that can be committed. Instead, I just look at the spirit of what's written here, this very simple list of Leviticus chapter 5. And so instead, all sins are categorized into ten statements that are known as the Ten Commandments. Every... Sin that's possible will fall under one of those ten categories in the Ten Commandments. So we expect that what the Bible would do in explaining this is to follow the normal convention when it discusses sin, and that is to divide the law into two parts. Sins that are against God and sins that are against man. Sins against God, as you know, are commandments 1 through 4. Sins against man are commandments 5 through 10. So here we have in, in this list... Uh, Leviticus 5 and 6, we have representative sins that are according to those two divisions, some that are against God and some that are against man. And as we study this, I'm going to add a third category to that. That would be just a general category of the whole of the commandments. Now, before we begin the discussion of categories, I need to make another point. I, I preach this often, but it, but it still needs to be said, because whenever we see proof of our doctrine... We need to point it out, we always have proof of our doctrine because we don't believe anything that can't be supported by the Scriptures, and so when you come across a proof of the preaching, I think it does us good to take some time to mark that doctrine in our Bibles. Now, the hyper-evangelistic tactics of fundamental groups will downplay and change the meaning of some Bible doctrines in order to make them fit into their unbiblical schemes, and so they have a push for quick conversions and for baptisms and building up numbers in the church, which would not be possible unless they used unbiblical methods of evangelism. And so their ministries that believe, or at least they act like they believe, that they're more responsible to get people saved than the Holy Spirit. That somehow, in their efforts, they're going to get more saved than God intended to save. And even God is surprised by some of the ones that they say are believers and are converts. And that's not hard for them to do because they don't believe that God decides or chooses anybody for salvation anyway. It's, it's just guesswork. And so their guess is as good as God's. And when we speak of groups that use guilt as a religious tool, there are people that use soul winning as a guilt trip. So they say things like this, if you don't go soul winning then you are responsible for souls that die and go to hell. Now, if if that's true, uh, we should preach the gospel, of course, but it's untrue that we can do anything about souls that are going to hell. The salvation of the soul is God's territory. That's not ours. And if it was ours, we could never bear the guilt of one single person that goes to hell because of what we've done. And so if you truly believed that you were responsible for souls that go to hell, how could you ever bear the guilt? I mean, can you imagine how you would ever get over this, that there was one person that went to hell for all of eternity, and that's your fault? I mean, who among them or us has not missed an opportunity to give the gospel to someone? How do then do we get over that guilt? Now, if they're serious about being responsible For people that go to hell, how do they live with themselves? Now think about this. Let's suppose that you were faithful to go soul winning every single day. But then one day you miss standing on the street corner passing out tracks. You get sick and you can't go. What are you going to do with all those potentials that came by your corner where you should be standing and they've died and gone to hell because you wouldn't drag yourself out of bed to go over there and stand on the street corner? After a million years, you're never going to be able to get over that guilt. How are you going to stand the responsibility of someone suffering for all eternity in hell? You see, here we have a doctrine that makes no sense. But they use it because they can guilt people into beating the bushes. Again, I'm not saying that we ought not to preach the gospel. Certainly we do. We need to because nobody's going to be saved without it. That part's true, but we don't want to lie to people and guilt them for something that they're not responsible for. That's a, that's a false tactic when people are guilted into building the church. And when those tactics are used, there are multitudes of false professions that are accepted as true to assuage the guilt of their soul-winning teams. But that's not my main point. That's your freebie. That's your theological freebie. The main thing is that they change doctrine to support their teaching of decisional regeneration. So they teach that salvation is an intellectual choice. You know the drill on this. We decide it's our choice. And it's much easier to get people to make a decision for Christ when you don't deal with their sin. Do you mean that I can have Christ as my Savior and that He will save me from hell, I don't have to go to hell, and all that I really need to do is just say your prayer. I don't have to deal with any sin and give up my sin. And they will say, no, you just believe. You don't worry about sin. And so they teach them to repent of the sin of unbelief, but not to repent of other sins. Now, I know this this next statement will unleash untold amounts of criticism. But what if you do when you witness to a man and and he says to you, do I have to give up my drinking to be saved? Or do I have to stop beating my wife to be saved? What are you going to say about that? Well, you say, well, you don't need to worry about that. Let's not talk about that. You can deal with that later. You just need to pray the prayer and sign the card. Oh, the Bible teaches that you say to the man, you must absolutely renounce those sins and turn from those sins. And if you're unwilling to do that at this very moment, to give up everything for Christ, then you will not be saved. But the hyper evangelistic crowd says, well that's adding something to salvation, you've added works, and salvation is by grace. No, I didn't add anything, all that I did was teach him what repentance, true repentance and saving faith are, and that's the difference between a false salvation that says that you can have Jesus as Savior, but you don't have to take him as Lord, and that's what they teach. Now I'm not making these things up, I know most of you have been here, you've Heard the teachings and you, you may be aghast that a Baptist would ever say to anyone that repentance from sin, turning from sins, is adding works to grace. Now let me just back it up and say it in another way. What if a man asks you, do I have to give up my drinking to be saved? You know what he's actually asking? Do I have to let Christ control my life? Does he have to be Lord? Or can I just keep my sins? and get him to keep me out of hell. Well, is it biblical salvation to tell him, yes, Jesus will be your Savior, but lordship is optional? Well, no, because saving faith, true saving faith, also includes repentance from all sin. And so we come to Christ holding on to nothing, but fully surrendering everything to Him. And these are the same people who will faithfully sing, I surrender all, but they don't believe in surrendering all. They want surrender for service to guilt people into doing it, but not surrender fully for salvation. Now, simply and as plainly as I can tell you, that's not the gospel of Christ. The gospel is not rightly understood and apprehended until a sinner is drawn to Christ with a deep feeling of guilt for sin and the realization that you need to get rid of it and surrender all to the Lordship of Christ. And this is sad, it's it's tragic, but most of these ministries reject lordship salvation because to believe in it and to do it the way that we say that it should be done doesn't let you get 50 people saved every day. And so they press for decisions with a deficient gospel, and yes, they do get decisions, but they're not true salvation decisions. So you check this thing out. Where are all of the hundreds of converts that they say that they've made? Where's the evidence of their salvation? Are they changed to be like Christ as Paul said they would be? Has the new nature done something in them? Do they obey Christ as he said that you would, that you would love Him and obey His commandments? See, if you don't deal with personal transgressions, what sinner is there that wouldn't want to be saved to go to heaven and still hang on to all of his vices and do whatever he wants? So when the salvation numbers have these astronomical fallout rates, they just say... Well, he's just backslidden. He's a Christian, but he's backslidden. Or he's a carnal Christian. Never mind that he never produced anything but rotten fruit. I heard one of these guys say that good works and keeping commandments are not methods of assurance. And he was arguing against the perseverance of believers, and he threw the Apostle John and 1 John right out of the window. The only thing that he said we need to do is to repeat the prayer... And that repeated prayer is the method of assurance. If you say that, count you. You are a believer. Now, how does that relate to our study tonight? Well, in the trespass offering, sins are named. This is not sin in the abstract. There are two offerings. One takes care of the nature. The other takes care of sins that are committed. And then this, whole, this will blow their minds. God demands confession and restitution. This is what we read in the passage. Sin is recognized, it is is confessed and repented of. And I know you've got to be scratching your head on how this is going to work. How can we be talking about restitution for sin? How are we going to get that into the theology of grace? And I'm going to show you that before we're through discussing the trespass offering. But you can rest assured right now, the Lordship crowd is never going to get it. They ignore all sins but those of that of unbelief well god says not only do you have to repent of all your sins but you also have to make it up and add more on top that's that's a difficult doctrine it needs to be explained doesn't it how again is that going to fit into the theology of grace well in 2000 years of church history there's no one who has proposed a salvation scheme that looks like that of the independent fundamental Baptist. I don't care what denomination it is. Nobody with an ounce of orthodoxy would say that people can be saved without repentance from all their sins. That's one of the most fundamental parts of the gospel. And yet that is a fundamental part that they missed. And you could be confused about a lot of things, but you don't want to be confused about this. Mark one fifteen, Jesus said, The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. Can you imagine for a moment that Jesus said, but don't worry about all your other sins. Just believe. Don't worry about everything else that you've done. That's okay. Well, nobody with a lick of theological sense would say that repentance and belief are the same things. Decisional regeneration and all that goes with that is a terrible blight on the gospel of Christ. So the doctrinal errors in that are are enormous. They are compounding. And why is the fallout? substantial, because those people aren't saved. We can't rush the Holy Spirit, and we cannot manipulate salvation. Well, now we go to the text. Those are things that needed to be pointed out, because decisional regeneration and non-lordship salvation cannot fit into these sacrifices, any more than universal atonement can fit. But we go to the text, and we see that sin is identified. Sin is going to fall within... One of these two divisions of the law. Now first, there is guilt from sins against holiness. And the holiness that I speak of is the righteousness of God. It's sin against God's character. All the commandments are about God's righteous character. But we respect the divisions in the law at this point. And uh, we're going to make these distinctions. And we're just going to have a chance, just a little bit of a chance to dabble in it this evening. And then we'll talk more about it the next time. Now, in verse number 15, the scripture says, If a soul commit a trespass and sin through ignorance in the holy things of the Lord. Now, the holy things it speaks of are those sins that are against that which represents God's holiness. Now, I'm struck by the word ignorance. There's a type of sin that's done in ignorance. Now, we'll talk more about that, but... This is a good place for us to stop and consider why is there so much trouble recognizing sins against God's holiness. I don't have much trouble identifying things that I do against you. I can steal from you. I know that's wrong. I can lie to you. I know that's wrong. I can speak slanderously against you. There are all sorts of things that I can do that I know that I've done you wrong. Crimes against our neighbor are much easier to identify than crimes against God. And the reason they are is that we recognize the standards that we've set for living with each other. We know when we cross the line where we shouldn't be. If we don't understand that those sins are also against God, because man is made in the image of God, then what we'll do is we'll walk all, all over God and not even know that we've done it. Now, I'm talking about a sanctified Christian versus a worldly man. How are we brought to the knowledge that our trespasses are against God? Well, it would be necessary for us to concern ourselves with the way that God is known. And you compare yourself, for instance, to your neighbor. Is he as much aware of God as you? Well, the answer to that would be no. Does he go to church? No, probably not. Your lost neighbors don't. Does he read the Bible? Well, no. These are... Ways in which God can be known. He doesn't know God, so he's unaware. So he's unthinking that the trespasses that he commits are against God. And Christians can be guilty of the same thing when they don't educate themselves properly about the things of God. And so if doctrines are changed, if worship is changed, if we satisfy the flesh rather than seeking what pleases God, then we'll trespass in holy things without knowing it. Now, tabernacle worship was very peculiar. We've seen that in these studies. Their rules and their rituals that show that God was very demanding about how we worship. There's none of us that would choose a system like this that requires as much concentration and dedication that we get things exactly right. You can't call this flesh-based worship. We would not choose to do this. I mean, who would choose a religion that requires you to kill an animal every day? Or more, multiple animals every day. This is worship that the natural man doesn't choose. Now, in past eras of Christianity, the formality of worship and the liturgies in worship, the protocols that are in worship, would not pull in the tavern crowd for their enjoyment. And yet, that's what modern worship today is. Churches blur the line between the sacred and the profane in their worship styles in order to attract crowds. So they're happy for lost people to come into the church and not feel that they're too distant from the way that they normally live, too distant from their environment. And this often starts in ways that you might not think of, things that are a slippery slope that slide right in to sins against God's holiness. One of these is architecture. Architecture can be a, a means of an aid to worship or it can hinder it. I, I don't make any secret to you that I like traditional church settings. I like pews. I like high ceilings. I like stained glass. I like a church that looks like a church. But the architecture of modern churches is often different because they have a performance stage, and they have the ceilings that are blacked out with stage lights, and they attract young people in a concert setting with the music and those things. And often the facade of the building is no different than an office building. And the focus there is not to please God. God's not consulted about this. They assume that what they like is what God likes. And when that happens, it's possible to intrude on holy things. That's to offend God without believing that you've done it. By believing that everything's well, that's a sin of ignorance when our worship is for us and not for God. Now, this is the issue of intruding on God's holiness. We do not set the standard for measuring sin. Now it's correctly stated, if a man's conscience or man's light were the standard, each man might have a different rule, and at this rate, right or wrong, good or evil, would depend not upon God's truth, but on the creature's apprehension of it. This is another point aptly made. Because a pig's filthiness is his standard of cleanliness, and he's unconscious of his state, does that mean we have to give up the real difference between clean and filthy? Now, our ignorance is no excuse for intruding upon God's holiness. So what does God do with all this? I mean, here we are, we haven't recognized, we don't know that we've intruded on God's holiness, so what happens? Well, He provides a way to pardon it. Now, the problem is that we want to continue in our filth and not to go in the way of holiness. And so because of grace, there are many people will say, it doesn't really matter, it's okay Because God overlooks all of our sin, and God will cover it. Oh, did you know the Apostle Paul addressed that very thing in Romans chapter 6? In verses 1 and 2, he says, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin, that grace may abound? God forbid! How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? I want you to think about that for a minute. What would you say to those thousands of animals that are killed as trespass offerings? Oh, it's okay. Bring another one. We'll just kill another one because I don't care to find out what I'm doing wrong in my ignorance. You see, if Israel didn't correct things, then very soon they'd run out of animals. Because every transgression requires another animal to be killed. Now, let's put two things together here. You you, you guys can think, so let's put it together. If God would allow a system of salvation that required no repentance from sin and no change to holiness then he must heap more suffering on Christ to pay for more sin. Every sin has to have amount of suffering to pay for it. Does that make sense to you? And so for the hyper-fundamentalist to have a salvation that does not demand the lordship of Christ and repentance from all sin, if people can be saved without repenting from all their sins, then God heaps more suffering on Christ for that purpose. Less sin requires less suffering. That also provides a, a great argument for particular redemption. Why would the omniscient, omnipotent God put more suffering on Christ for people that He knew would be in hell? Why would Christ suffer the equivalent amount for the sins that are committed by people that God already knows they will not be saved? Which of those makes God a, a, a more of a tyrant? Not providing... Uh, an atonement for those who will never believe and God knows they will never believe or provide an atonement for them by putting more suffering on Christ to endure this this infinite suffering of hell for people that will not believe. I don't have any problems believing in particular redemption. Well, there, there is much more for us to consider in the nuances of this offering. The word ignorance here is not superfluous God is in these details. And would to God that theology of some of these people was more detailed. They need to think through these things to see that their theology is just a dead end of contradictions. I even heard more than one of them complain about the complexities of our doctrine. Complexities of our doctrine. They complain about the confounded complexities of these truths that they rather ignore And so they change the doctrine to fit what they don't understand. Well, it appears to me, if you've read this, and you've looked at it, and you've heard the preaching on this, that this is quite complex. Do you agree with me? These are complex things. These are hard things. That's why we study them. That's why we dig them out. Because they are hard things. Now, intruding on God's holiness should be more important than the laziness of not trying to find out the complexities and dealing with those. Well, that's the point that I'll stop. Take some time to think over these things. I suppose there's one reason that most of these people don't know anything about Levitical sacrifices. It's just too hard on their doctrine. It's just too difficult to consider all this. It's just too complex for them. And they don't care to study the Word of God the way that they should. Blessed be God for Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you now thanking you, for, Lord, for the salvation we have in Jesus Christ. And yes, doctrine is complex. What you did was not simple, not easy. All of these sacrifices in the Old Testament point out all these complexities. So we dare not come to the New Testament and say, well, we've got to simplify this thing And we need to make salvation so easy to believe that it doesn't require anything from us. All we need to do is sign the card. No, Lord, you expect something in salvation. Repentance from our sin. Faith in Jesus Christ. And then the Lordship of Christ. All of that goes together so that we recognize that Jesus Christ is Lord over all and demands that we give up all sin when we come to Him. Thank you, Lord, for the salvation that we have in Christ. Not that we're better than others, not that we have somehow superior knowledge of others. No, nothing that we have comes from anyone but the Holy Spirit of God teaching us through His Word. Thank you, Lord, for the Word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church,